This is episode 263 of At Percussion. With me today, as usual, our co-host, Casey Cangelosi. Hey, Casey. Hey, Carly. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, glad to be back with power. That's an yeah, awesome yeah. day. Uh, and of course, Ksenia Komjanovic is also here. How's it going, Ksenia? Hey, Carly. It's going well, and we are so happy to have you fully powered back. <laughs> Woohoo! No generator. <laughs> and Ben Charles is here. How's it going, Ben? Hey, Carly, I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Carly, I enjoyed your little uh, recital excerpts that you put on Facebook of some some different pieces. Oh, thanks so much. Gosh, it was uh, it was it was super fun to put together. Um, but it was a strange way to present a recital as a YouTube playlist because yeah. I just felt like the the time happened that like oh it's going live now and it's like okay <laughs> people could be watching right now like it's just I guess I'll take a bow in my living room yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I just want to, you had a great corporal knockout. <laughs> right. Just like that, that was a golden three seconds. The best. Now, I, I was going to say for, for anyone listening, it's, it's cool. Like when you're in grad school, you see people learn pieces. And really, I think we would all agree. A lot of the pieces that you learn in grad school will be staples in your repertoire for the rest of your career. And like I saw Carly learning Stuart Saunders Smith songs one through nine and I think more accurately, I saw Carly suffering through the difficulty of learning that piece. I remember she was like, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> and then she did, and it was awesome. And she's still playing it. So good for you, Carly. Hey, thanks, Ben. You know, thinking about learning that piece, the hardest part was probably learning how to snap my fingers. I couldn't do it before I did that piece. Um, and also, I'm supposed to whistle in that piece. Also in Corporal, there's some whistling, and I never learned. Oh, and in, in Dressor also, I never learned how to whistle. I still can't do it. It's like every time I rework these pieces, I'm like, oh, maybe this time I'll be able to learn how to whistle. <laughs> so I fake it. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> it's really common, I think. Yeah, a lot of people can't whistle. I've tried. I've tried like a lot. I've watched mm. YouTube videos. I've asked like tons of people. <laughs> Taking a course. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a MOOC for that. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks. Thanks, Ben, for that. Um, we're, we're recording today on November 22nd, but this episode will be released on December 24th. So Ben, what happened in music history on December 24th? Yeah, so it was actually, I was looking for things not Christmas related, but Merry Christmas to everyone listening on release day. Um, and I found a few things. One is that in 1781, there was actually the first ever promoted two piano performance uh, with Mozart and Clementi performing a piece by the Italian composer Giovanni Paisello. Um, and so that was maybe not the actual first, but the first time there was ever one promoted. In 1871, Verdi's Aida was premiered. And in 1971, this one's for Carly, Ricky Martin was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, but then I was like, all right, let's, let's, let's steer into the skid here. It is Christmas Eve. So my uh, music history item for Christmas Eve is in 1818 was the first ever performance of Silent Night. It was at St. Nicholas Parish Church in Oberndorf, Austria. And so basically the, this church had an organ and it's on a river and the river would flood. And over time, the flood caused damage to the, excuse me, the river caused damage to the organ. And so a couple of days before, uh, there was a group that was coming through town to perform like a Christmas pageant sort of thing. And they actually held it somewhere other than the church. And on the way back, the uh, pastor for the church, Joseph Moore, uh, was looking at the church and looking at the town, and he was just so inspired. And he thought of a poem that he had written a few years prior. Uh, and he asked the church uh, organist, Franz Xavier Gruber, to write music for it uh, to be accompanied by guitar instead of organ. So the first performance of Silent Night was actually on guitar, not organ. Uh, Silent Night was declared an intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO in 2011. Bing Crosby's version is the fourth best-selling single of all time. There have been various translations. One of the things I was curious to learn is that the, the line about uh, so tender and mild, something about the infant tender and mild, it actually more accurately translates to curly haired kid, basically. 
Um, and then let's see here, the church uh, in Ober Oberndorf uh, was actually eventually destroyed by flooding and they replaced it with something called the Silent Night Chapel. And then they uh, made the church, I think it was like 800 meters away, something like that. But there is actually a one-to-one -one replica of that uh, Silent Night Chapel in Frankenmuth, Michigan. And then uh, one other funny little thing, in 1978, Alfred Schnittke uh, composed a setting of it that caused a scandal in Austria because it's very disturbing and frightening in its character. And it's on YouTube with a little score follow along. It's it's kind of, it's like Bartok-ish, kind of creepy. So yeah, wow. 1818. Wow, cool, Ben. Yeah, and if anyone's interested in reading the story without me stumbling through it, there's an article from Southern Nazarene University called The Story Behind the Classic Christmas Carol, Silent Night. You can look that up. How come, I, this is what I learned from that, Ben. I've learned that we can have little tunes like that our whole lives and grow up with them and have them memorized. And then we can go to college as music majors and just like never even ask or care where this piece of music came from. Yeah. And there was like, I think it was something along the lines of like, they actually didn't know who wrote the lyrics until I think it was 1995. They found a manuscript uh, in the composer's pen that, that attributed the lyrics to the the guy that wrote them so yeah wow cool very interesting well and very timely as i'm sure many people will hear silent night today on release day um thanks ben we wish you all happy holidays no matter what holiday you are celebrating and whatever it looks like this year may not be a normal holiday but without further ado i'd like to introduce today's guest Kara Wildman is with us today. She's an accomplished percussionist, pianist, and Bowron player from Dorchester, Texas. She's performed with Carolina Crown Drum and Bugle Corps, Celtic Thunder, and the Irish Memory Orchestra, and has performed in Puerto Rico and Argentina, Ireland, Canada, and throughout the U.S. as well. In addition to earning her bachelor's and master's degrees in music education from Texas Christian University, Kara completed a second master's degree in Irish traditional music performance from the University of Limerick in Ireland. Uh, welcome to the show, Kara. It's so wonderful to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for the, that lovely introduction. I'm blushing over here. <laughs> well, I'd like to start off. Maybe you can tell us a bit about how you got into playing the Bowron. What, what sparked your interest and how did you get started? Sure. Yeah, I'm actually from a very small town called Dorchester, Texas. There's only 105 people here. And I grew up on a cattle ranch, which I know, again, is very uh, stereotypical Texan, but in my case, it's true. That was always one of the first questions I got asked when I lived in Ireland. They're like, you're from Texas. Do you have a horse? And yes, I do have a horse. Um, so yeah, uh, growing up, I, I feel like I maybe had a little bit more of an eclectic musical background than some people. Uh, my family was super into musicals. So I can remember being really little and my dad had all the Rodgers and Hammerstein classics and we'd sit in the living room and watch those, listen to tons of country music, old country, Bob Wills, Sleep at the Wheel, Gene Autry. If any of our listeners aren't familiar with those guys, you should definitely check them out. And then some traditional music too. So my mom's actually a first generation American. Her mom's from New Zealand and then both of her parents, my great grandparents are from Ireland. So they left Ireland during the troubles on a boat to New Zealand and they met on the boat on the way over and got married. So I didn't grow up in, I guess, like a lot of, of Irish people, you know, would be out in the pubs every weekend playing, playing music and things like that. So I wasn't doing that, but, but did have a lot of folk music in my life growing up. Did band in, in high school and college and I loved the classical side of things. I loved orchestra, drum corps, percussion ensemble, like just so many new experiences coming from a small town and then getting to go to such a fantastic university and be exposed to so many other styles of music. But I don't know, there was always something I really just missed the folk music side of things. And I guess it was maybe 2012. We have a great festival here called the O'Flaherty Irish Music Retreat. And it's every October, usually in person, not this year because of the pandemic, um, but they have classes for all the Irish music instruments you could ever want to learn, plus singing and dancing. And so it's four days and basically you go and take classes and have sessions in the evenings. And so that was my first year 
going and um, Bowron seemed like the natural choice for me since I already played percussion and I was hooked after that. So was that in 2012, was that your first time playing Bowron? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. And you've, you've accomplished, if anybody hasn't seen um, Kara's videos, she's got videos on her uh, Instagram and on her Facebook account. Um, they're just super, super cool. She's great at it. Um, Casey, I think you have something. Well, uh, you know, Kara, you said you said old country when you were talking about growing up listening to country music. And yeah, first and foremost, yeah, you're such a good Bowron player. It's we definitely oh, are here. <laughs> we're definitely here to talk about that for sure. Like you're so good at that instrument. But I, I wanted to ask real quick, what's for our young listeners, especially who maybe might not distinguish between country music and old country music? Like I think it's cool you made that distinction. What's old country music? Yeah, so I guess when I'm saying old country, I'm meaning more um, Western swing. So if you're not familiar with Western swing, it kind of came about turn of the century and really took a lot of influences from other styles of music. So I guess one of the big characteristics is, is they took a lot of rhythms from the jazz bands in the day, hence the name Western Swing. Um, but there's also a lot of blues stuff. Uh, this book that I read recently said, um, like if you listen to any Bob Wills, he does this sort of call in the songs. And someone even has attributed that to some of the mariachi music from around here. Yeah, it's a really unique style of music. It's great for dancing. I don't know if I said that at the beginning of this, but my parents are really fantastic dancers. So even before I was playing music, I remember us them taking us when we were little out to the dance halls and learning how to dance before I could even play any, any music. And we'll probably talk about this later, but that's something I've been complimented a lot when I'm playing Irish music in my hornpipes which they're very swingy. And everyone always says, well, wow, you have such a nice swing in your hornpipes. And I really 100% believe it's from growing up listening to so much Bob Wills and Asleep at the Wheel, because it's the same sort of hop in the Western swing as it is in a hornpipe. There's this Lyle Lovett song I used to walk a, my music preach class through, and I don't know. And they're always like, wait, this is country music? This isn't country music. And it's probably certainly not the oldest country that you're talking about here, but uh, I don't know. I thought that was interesting you mentioned that in my uh music appreciation class one of the things we end up talking about is uh tuvin throat singing and uh, i was fascinated to find there's an old texas country music singer from like the 1920s named arthur miles that actually did the same technique in his music just coincidentally he wasn't listening oh no way <laughs> yeah uh what's it called lonely cowboy is the song he does it in but uh kara i had a question actually also related to like folk music to me it's it's interesting the just the idea of folk music i was not raised in an explicitly musical household i mean my parents enjoyed music but they were not musicians, not dancers by any means. Um, but when I think of folk music, I really think of like growing up steeped in the tradition. And it's interesting, it sounds like you were steeped in the tradition of listening, but then you actually started playing later. Do you think that like, let's say me as an example, if I grew up as a Western percussionist and then I wanted to get into Irish folk music or something like that, would I have barriers starting as a 22 year old or something like that? Wow, that's a really great question. I would say yes and no. I mean, I think it's definitely easier if you grow up in the culture, not because you have to be born Irish or born Cuban or born whatever to play a certain style of music, but you need to be listening to it, right? If you don't have those sounds in your head, then it's not going to come out in your playing. I remember when I was um, in college, a professor of mine, I think we we're talking about doing some um, salsa. I was taking piano with him because I really, I love salsa music and was was really into that style and um, you know jazz and just different 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 kinds of styles and that was his big thing is like you have to listen to it and I didn't it sounded so simple you know and I feel like we often want to make things so much co more complicated and have okay here's the three rules that you need to have to be a great whatever fill in the blank and and thinking really that's all I have to do is listen but that really is the key so I think you know if you're in an environment where you're growing up hearing those melodies all the day you're gonna you're gonna absorb it and it's gonna come out in your playing so I think that would be a plus growing up in the tradition but that doesn't mean that you know you can't catch up later in your life and and do that I know for me and I think we might get into this a little bit later but in some ways my classical percussion playing was helpful in learning um, traditional music and in other ways it really wasn't um, just, I think in 
in some of the mindset things and ways I thought about playing or practicing or what music should be or what tradition meant. So yeah, I think that was a, a not necessarily helpful part of my education as I started getting into traditional music. Yeah, I think what you said about listening is, is so true really for all music. I mean, not, not just quote unquote folk music, but classical music as well. I mean, if you don't know how Bach is supposed to sound, well, yeah, exactly. Well. <laughs> right. What a should sound like, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to, to hear you say that. One of my teachers, uh, Puvalar Sriji, who's an Indian musician, uh, he says that he'll have people come and say, you know, oh, I grew up, I always wanted to be a musician. My parents pushed me to be a doctor. You know, I'm from an Indian family. Can you teach me to play Murdangam? And he says, no, I can't. Like, you, you, it's it's too late. And I mean, that that instrument requires such a specialized technique and ways of moving your fingers that I think that that's probably a, a bigger hurdle than than most other quote-unquote folk instruments um, but yeah I, I will say though that I think that learning the style of Indian music yes you can do as an older person but yeah thanks for that we should adopt that Ben like hey will you teach me triangle and snare drum and, and tambourine no well I mean at the same rate like can you imagine a too young college too freshman young. showing up having never played flute before and saying yeah can you teach me flute like I, I can, but it's it's gonna be rough. I, anytime anyone's asked me to teach them flute, I've said no. Well, yeah, I think Ben, coming back to your question, I think it depends too what your what your goals are. Like as a twenty five year old, if you want to make your living in music and you've never touched an instrument in your life, of course that's going to be a challenge. But you know, if you want to maybe learn a little piano so you can play something at your family's birthday party or Christmas or go sit in a session. You know, I think it just depends what your, what your goals are and to realize that there's lots of ways to be involved with music that aren't having it as your career. And I think that was another big turning point for me too in my, in my experiences in Europe, thinking about how many different ways you can enjoy music without it being your job. Exactly, exactly. That's smart. And I think also don't don't be discouraged, obviously. Um, there are people like Bobby McFerrin who did not start his music career until when it, well in his 30s. So it's not like it can't happen. Um, but Kara, I was going to ask you, I would love to know more about your second master's degree in traditional Irish music performance. What was that like? What does that look like? Can you tell us about the experience? Yeah, sure. So so after I finished college at TCU, I was teaching in a large school district and it ended up really actually being a really tough year for a lot of reasons that I, I won't get into during this podcast, but one of those ended up being uh, the state of Texas had a really big cut in educational funding that year. And basically in one day, there were 300 teachers in my school district that all got laid off in the same day because there was no money. So at that point, it was kind of like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, I don't have a job. And I don't know. I just, after such a hard year, I really wanted to just get away. And so I started looking online to see what, what things could I do. And I found that there was a master's degree in Irish traditional music at the University of Limerick in Ireland. And looking back, I'm like, I had no business applying for that degree, like zero. I was so bad. I had no idea how bad I was, you know, like no perspective at all. I just, I was thinking, Ireland, that sounds great. I'll just do that. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, I'm glad I did it. it ended up very well for me in, in this case, but um, yeah. So I auditioned for the school. This is all via Skype, by the way, I was not flying back and forth. And um, they said, yeah, you need to, you need to work on some stuff. Like, why don't you try these things, practice this re-audition in six months? And I said, okay. So um, re-auditioned six months later and then didn't ever hear anything from them. And we were going to Ireland that summer either to move me in for a college or to visit my cousins. Like we were going either way and never heard anything, went to Ireland. And, you know, I just assumed I didn't get in the course and, um, had a great trip, was there with my mom and my sister. And then literally the day that we got back, I had an email from the college saying like, oh, so sorry, the lady who was in charge of applications been really sick in the hospital. 
We're just trying to catch up now on all the applications and we'd like to offer you a spot. <laughs> it was like, I was literally there yesterday. And so I asked if they, I mean, they were asking me to come in like two weeks. It's like, I'd already accepted a job for the fall. I couldn't just drop everything. And so I asked if they could defer my application and they said, no, you need to audition again. So I auditioned a third time and then went the following year, which ended up being great because my classmates were absolutely the best and I would have missed meeting all of them um, if I'd gone the year before. But I guess in terms of coursework and things like that, it was so, so different than college here in the U.S. I mean, just culturally, even, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to Ireland. They all speak English. How much of a, of a, uh, difference is this going to be and like the culture shock was real right even just going to the grocery store and you're looking for zucchinis for dinner and nobody knows what a zucchini is because they call them courgettes there or whatever like things like that and <laughs> so, um yeah but the classes were we had uh weekly lessons with our our teachers and our main instrument so I was taking Byron lessons with Jim Higgins if any of you guys don't know him please check him out he's an incredible Baron player, great teacher, the nicest person you'll ever meet. I can't say enough good things about Jim. So I had an hour lesson with him every week. And then we had a whole bunch of different classes. So one about how to do field work and things like go collect tunes or dance steps in an ethical way. Um, we had one called writing in the documentation of practice, which basically um, they gave you a whole bunch of articles and it wasn't just the musicians. It was the dancers and the ethnomusicologist and the ethnochoreologist and all the arts master's students in one class, which is another really amazing thing to get to, to meet with all those people and, and hear their perspectives. And they just sort of sent you the articles and said, okay, go read these and come back in six weeks and tell us what you learned, do this project. I mean, it was a lot of sort of them being almost a catalyst for learning. Um, so it was up to you what you wanted to get out of the projects and the courses. It was not really any of this, like sit down in a lecture and receive information and then have an exam or something like that. It was very much them giving you things to think about. And then um, you sort of coming back with what you learned and what you wanted out of it. So that was a really, a really different thing for me. Uh, I, I think you're already kind of into this, but uh, Russell Wharton had a question on Facebook and he wanted to know if you had a specific disadvantage as an outsider or, or advantage as an outsider. I think you already are, have been touching on it a lot. I was going to say, I bet you had to up your drinking game like quintuple or so. That was How did you know? Well, because um, I went there one time and oh man, <laughs> yeah, I just, I, 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 it basically kicked me out. <laughs> I think it would have been an advantage that I knew how to read music. That was a big advantage, which I know sounds really simple. Uh, but lots of my classmates didn't read music at all just because they didn't need to. Disadvantages, I feel like in some ways, my classical sort of background, um, well, in some ways was a huge advantage in some other, other ways, you know, especially in the way I thought about things was a disadvantage um, just because I think in percussion, especially we're so trained about this is the right way to do things. And there's this technique and this is how you hit the instrument. And this is how to hold the sticks. And this is the way that you should interpret this passage or whatever. And so I spent a lot of time feeling almost like an imposter, you know, like I'm an American. What am I doing here? Do I really have any business being here? Am I really going to be good at this instrument? Or are they just being nice to me because Irish people are really nice? You know, that sort of thing. Um, so it took me a long time to kind of get over that. And as part of that writing class I was telling you guys about, uh, we had to interview some people about our, our playing and just say, what do you think my strengths are? Where do you think I could improve? And one of the questions that, that we had us ask were, um, do you think my, my background in whatever it was has helped or hindered me in this course? And one of the, there are only two Byron players on the course, myself and Colin Phelan, who's a dear friend and fantastic Byron player. Uh, I was interviewing him and I asked him what he thought about that. And he said, yeah, I think it's really hindered you because you're really worried about the right way to do things. And he said, you just need to play, like stop worrying so much. So I think in that way, that was a hindrance. 
It's so interesting to think about because we, we can, in conservatory training and classical training, get so obsessed with, I need to do this right and, you know, the correct way, and it needs to be perfect, and it needs to be, you know, bulletproof. But it's a good reminder, I mean, not just in traditional music or jazz or, or other genres, but within the classical and classical contemporary genres too, like, we need to enjoy what we're doing, and we can't overthink everything. We still need to be involved in the real live music making that's taking place, so... It's nice to hear you speak about that. Kara, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit more about what does traditional music mean to you um, and you in, as a musician and maybe some of the differences between tradition in folk music versus classical music. Sure. Yeah. And Carly, I know we talked about this a little bit yesterday. I was telling Carly a story that in one of my very first classes in UL, our professor, she'd made a comment just sort of offhand and said the worst insult you could ever get in traditional music is for someone to tell you that you sound like another musician. And I was, I was shocked that she said that. I mean, almost, <laughs> almost disturbed. And, you know, just coming again, straight out of a, a university program where you spend so much time doing transcriptions for a drum set or whatever, and you want to sound exactly like the person you're listening to note for note style everything and I was so like I, I couldn't understand why she would say that and I scheduled a meeting with her because I was so distraught over this comment that nobody else in my class seemed to think anything of and so I went in and she was she couldn't believe that I was you know this distressed about it and she said yeah like um you know it's traditional music and everyone here we expect them to have their their feet sort of rooted in the tradition, you know, it's your job to contribute something to the tradition, not just keep it at where it is. You know, you need to have your own voice. You need to bring something, bring something to the table, essentially, is what she was saying. And just in my own experience traveling both here in the U.S. and um, playing in Ireland, I felt like there was so much more freedom Playing in Ireland, I feel like, you know, and again, we haven't really touched on Bauer on itself yet, but it doesn't necessarily have the best rap. Um, I guess that just goes with maybe playing any percussion <laughs> instrument. People sometimes just think we're not uh, real musicians or whatever. Um, that stereotype, I think, sort of tends to linger. So, yeah, it, it comes with Bauron, too. But um, I didn't find that in Ireland. You know, I'd go into a session and sit down, and they were always super friendly and happy to have me and been to some other sessions here in the United States. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm speaking badly of the U.S. musicians because there's been a ton of really amazing, friendly, welcoming ones. So generally, it's great here. But a few, you know, you'll run into some people and they just don't like Bauern players or whatever. And um, I think that coming back to the tradition question, and I haven't done any research or talked to enough people. This is just my opinion at this point. But I think it would be a guess that American musicians, you know, when people were, were having to leave Ireland because of the famine or the wars or whatever, they brought their music with them. And, you know, that's something very precious. They don't want, they don't want that to be um, diluted or changed or forgotten. So it's understandable why musicians who come here would be very protective of that, right? And I think that's a good thing. But I think it's it's also possible to be maybe too protective. And if that gets passed down to being, you know, stingy or unfriendly, that's not not necessarily good. So, Carly, that was kind of a long, windy answer to your question. I hope I got what you wanted to wanted to know. That and more. No, it was good. And it all it all ties together. I wanted to inquire a little bit more about these musical slash cultural differences. You said that you suffered quite a culture shock, but I'd like to know how did that relate to music a little bit more than, you know, just traditional versus classical um, approach? Was there anything else that stuck out for you? Sure. I think the concept of time was a big one for me. <laughs> uh, European people in general are very laid back about um, schedules and meetings and things like that. And we even had, um, I think it was the first week of classes, one of our professors just sat all of us down and said, okay, Irish time is not the same as in other places in the world, especially not Canada or the US. So if we say one o'clock, then that could mean anywhere from one to two. 
So just grab a coffee, you know, whatever. So that was a big thing is just learning how to kind of chill out and relax. All our professors, they did not go by any of their titles. So we called them all by their first names, which was very uncomfortable for me at first. Going out to drink with your professors, again, that was not something I ever would have done over here. And that was just normal, like in the daytime, day drinking with professors. That was Brian like- Brian West didn't, <laughs> didn't do that with y'all? No, no, no. Oh, I'm surprised. <laughs> for he sure. did not. He did not. So yeah, it was totally normal because we had, this was, this was bad, y'all. We had, um, I think, five pubs on campus. And- well, I say it was bad. It was actually the best thing ever. And um, we just have a break between classes and go over and have a pint for lunch and then come back. Yeah, even one of my lectures, I think it was a three hour on Tuesdays. And so after half the class was over, she'd take a break and say, okay, we'll have a, we'll have a tea and coffee break now. And everyone would go down to the cafe in the bottom of the academy and grab a tea. It was only supposed to be 10 minutes, but it was always like 30 minutes. Where do you sit on the like Guinness discussion, the Guinness debate? People who are like, oh, Guinness is like way better in Ireland. Oh, it is way better in Ireland. It is. I just <laughs> yes. thought it was different. I didn't think it was, I thought it was, I definitely can taste the difference. Maybe I was too used to it here. Maybe, I don't know. Okay. But you're an expert, so I'm. we're going to go with that. <laughs> we finally got to the important question. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now you all have to take a trip to Ireland so you can get your Guinness over there. We'll settle the debate. Was there more more uh, cultural differences? Yeah, well, I might just talk about our ensemble class a little bit. This is another sort of musical slash cultural difference, but there are 18 of us in the program, the Masters in Music Performance program, and that was all the instruments. So we had, uh, I'm not going to be able to get all these numbers right right now, but I'll try and remember. I think it was four fiddle players, two singers, a cellist, flute player, pipes, two bowron accordion and a four concertina and a harp, I believe. So we were all in the same class together and they split us up into two groups every semester for ensemble. It was just called ensemble. So nine and nine. And I think they did this intentionally. They put weird groupings of instruments together. So usually you would expect maybe a few melody instruments, a bowron player, and then some kind of backer, whether that's piano or harp or guitar, somebody to play chords. And so my first semester, I think it was, we had two fiddles, concertina, singer, bowron, and cello. And we're all kind of sitting there in this room waiting for class to start. And again, with the difference in time, 45 minutes later, the professor sticks her head in the door and she was like, you guys know what you're supposed to be doing? And we said, no, we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And um, she said, okay, well, uh, you have an hour-long performance at the end of the semester and see you then basically so after that we kind of just sat around and you know somebody would play oh do you know this tune this is a nice tune and no I don't know that one or I like it let me record it so that you know because again with the music reading so everyone rec record the tune so they could go home and practice and um, so basically we would put together all these sets and then we would have different people come in and listen to our our sets throughout the semester so one week we might have Karen Tweed, I'll say she's a great piano accordion player and she'd come in and listen to your stuff and say, yeah, I like this. I don't like this. Maybe you should change this. And then we'd have about two weeks maybe to sort of rearrange things, fix what we liked. Um, and then we'd have another person come in who would be on the totally opposite end of the spectrum. And so this would happen about three or four times throughout the semester. And so by the end, you just kind of feel like your brain scrambled eggs and what are we going to play? And it was just up to you to sort of pick what your group liked and then, um, yeah, put together a performance and give it at the end and hope that everyone else liked it too. That's, That's so interesting and, and so different from, you know, from what we normally see. So structured in the U.S. as far as here's your repertoire, here's how you're going to do it, and I'm going to check in with you once a week and tell you what you're doing wrong and what we need to fix and refine, uh, you know, and polish as much as possible. But at the time, did it feel refreshing to you to have that kind of approach? Or did it feel kind of like, where's the ground beneath my feet? How do we put this together? <laughs> yeah, I would say both for sure. Definitely. I mean, it was very overwhelming at times, for sure. And then just, what do I play? You know, I'm, you're so used to having music in front of you saying, do this exactly. And then to not have that was very sort of 
freeing in a way, but also terrifying. <laughs> I will say, I mean, like, especially coming from Texas, which is like metronome state. I mean, like, I would imagine that in Ireland, they're probably not, they don't have the doctor beat cranked up. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, we did not practice with the metronome, but I feel like in general, just because the music's so rhythmic, I feel like most of their um, timing was far above average than most musicians you would meet. <laughs> it's 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 interesting to to hear it because it seems like extreme, but man, the other extreme over here is is really, you know, there are some students and some some teachers that expect to have like a really high power magnifying glass over every student and it's like man no you, you like i'm not going to take your hand and do it for you like i told you to register for these classes and if you didn't do it i'm not checking up on it like i told you to do it you didn't do it man you're screwed now you know like but they right uh but, but like yeah other teachers have and students will have an expectation of like no you have to like hold their hand through every single little thing it's like oh, i don't think that's good though so Somewhere right. in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a balance. The problem with drinking age in the US. Sorry to interrupt, but this might be the most important topic of this podcast. <laughs> the problem with drinking age in the US, because you can't tell that 18-year-old to go get a beer, get figure their stuff out, and then come back three weeks later with everything figured out. But you have to walk them because you think they are too tiny because they can't handle alcohol. That's why Europe see creates people like Kara here. <laughs> What's that amazing alcohol? I'm confused. Because you can't drink under the age of 21. I know, but you don't need. You shouldn't need to have a beer to, you know, sign up for your classes. No, that's exactly what you need. That's exactly why students are better, <laughs> more self-sufficient in Europe because they go get a beer and then they drunk register for classes. It's way more interesting. They drunk register for classes. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many people are going to go and do that for next semester. After hearing I'll start a movement. Okay. <laughs> I'm about, I think we're about done with Europe on this show. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> well, Kara, I did want to make sure to, to mention, on top of being a wonderful Bowron player, you've also had international accolades, including winning the Senior Bowron Championship for the Limerick and Midwest Fleet HANA in 2016, 2018, and 2019. Would you tell us a little bit about these competitions and what your experience was like? Sure. So basically there's this big competition and this all sort of grew out of, I'll, I'll back up just a little bit, very super brief condensed history of Ireland. They're not always a free country. They were under colonized by England for quite a long time. And during that time, there were a lot of laws about a lot of things saying like, if you were Irish, you couldn't own property or you were not allowed to be Catholic or you couldn't speak the Irish language and no dancing and no music, like all kinds of things. So they had their war for independence, I believe in 1916. And so after they got their freedom, then there was a big push culturally to sort of revive the language and the music and the dance and did all sorts of um, different government initiatives to help that along, you know, so it wouldn't be forgotten after being stamped out for, for so many years. So one of those was uh, Cultus. It's a music organization and um, they started having different music classes and I'm no expert on Cultus history. So if there's anyone, anyone listening, please feel free to correct if I misspeak anything here. I'm sure you can look it up as well. Uh, C-O-M-H-A-L-T-A-S, how you spell it, Cultus. But they had different competitions um, all over Ireland that culminated in the Flacule Naharan, which is basically the, the all Ireland's is what everyone calls it. So basically they have different competitions and different age groups for all sorts of instruments, singing, dancing, storytelling, whistling, uh, is actually a competition, lilting, uh, they have duets, trios, the biggest competition of the weekends, the Kaylee band, which is a sort of a dance band for Irish music. So yeah, I competed in Senior Valron, which is over 18. There's no regulations on who can compete. Basically, if you're over 18, you can compete. It doesn't mean it, it if you're a professional or, or not. Yeah, basically, I competed through uh, the Midwest, would be my local organization. Um, it was in, I guess, St. Louis that year. And you go and you play four tunes with a melody player. And if you get first or second in the competition, then you advance to the next round. 
And the rules are the judges don't have to place anyone first or second. So if you're the only one competing and they don't think you're good enough, they can just give you third place and that's it. <laughs> so, so I got first in the Midwest. And then if you're in Ireland, you compete within your county. Um, the next level would be your province. So when I was in Ireland, I competed in Munster. That would be my province. If you're in the United States, we don't have a provincial because there's not enough musicians and they take the first again top two from each province and so basically in each category in each age group I think there's maybe 14 people that make it to the final round so last summer I made it through and I went to compete in Ireland and just thought okay I'm gonna give it my best but this is my first year ever competing here and um, I'm not gonna stress I'm just gonna get up and have fun and see how it goes and you're sitting there and again, like there's no, there's not really a lot of rules because they really want all the individual styles of playing to sort of show through. So you have to pick four tunes um, out of a big list. So that would include uh, jigs, reels, slip jigs, hornpipes, polkas, flings. I think maybe stress bays are on the list, but I can't remember. Anyway, you pick four. So I did a jig, a reel, a polka, and a hornpipe. And, you know, you want to obviously practice with your melody player and make sure you get your little variations and stuff down. And yeah, it was just amazing sitting there listening to everyone and seeing such a wide variety of styles and every person gets up and you think, wow, that was amazing. And then the next person, wow, it's even more amazing, but it's totally different. And um, yeah, so I got to play and just really enjoyed it, had a lot of fun and then sat down and they called the results in third place. I, I got third place and I was shocked because I was just, you know, thought I'd just do it for the fun that summer. And yeah, I was the first American ever to place in senior Bowron. So that was pretty amazing. Cool. Whoop, whoop. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thanks. Well, that's so cool. Thanks for telling us about that. Uh, it's wonderful to hear. Cassania, let's dive into your topic now. Yeah, sure. So I picked a bit of a well, different, I think, and interesting topic. I think I already know what Casey's going to say. No, I don't. No, I actually don't. But here, um, so I picked a recent New Yorker article by none other than the great Alex Ross. And the article title was The Hidden Cost of Streaming Music. And so the article sort of opens by saying, you know, how listening to music on our pocket devices appears to be clean. You know, we're not accumulating heaps of vinyl or CDs and therefore doing something um, bad for the environment. But, you know, it's just coming out of the ether, so it's amazing. Um, however, Alex Ross uh, discusses the recent book called Decompose, The Political Ecology of Music, written by Kyle, and now I'm going to butcher the last name because I don't understand English. It's divine or divine or divine, D-E-V-I-N-E. Anyway, the book dismantles this idea. And the book is obviously dedicated to the ecology of music and it asks all the interesting questions, which is under which conditions were these recordings made and who do they benefit? Do they mistreat anyone in the process? Do they contribute to pollution and so on? And if we knew the price that we pay ecologically per listen, would we then evaluate how much music we listen um, and you know, think about our clicking away, our streaming, our downloading, um, because there is a price to this infinite streaming and infinite storage. It obviously requires a steady surge of energy. Um, and they say the environmental cost of music is now greater than at any time during recorded music's previous eras. So he did some research and said that in 2016, streaming and downloading music generated around 194 million kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's 40 million more than the emissions associated with all music formats in 2000, which is back when everybody used CDs or cassette tapes or vinyl if you're a hipster. Um, and then, you know, the article goes into other included um, sort of the hidden and overlooked costs, the exploitative regimes of labor that enable the production of the devices that we use to listen to music and all of their components. So, you know, it discusses the Uyghurs minority that's been pressed into producing Apple devices, the Chad laborers that are involved in the mining of cobalt, which is used in iPhone batteries and so on, and sort of tries to pull the string to find the, the root of everything. 
I think, I mean, there's so many interesting uh, points in this article. And I think the one that I think might resonate with Casey is the moment when they say, well, every field of human endeavor entails some form of environmental destruction and the music industry is perhaps no worse than any other. A sour critic, and I love this one, might point out that printing a book about the political ecology of music makes its own contribution to the destruction of the planet. But the author is not uh, interested at all in inducing guilt, but just in making us think further, because we think of uh, music as this altruistic art form um, that is so dedicated to its ideology that it somehow is special and transcends the conditions of its production. But that's not true. Um, and so the article goes in depth into, you know, how vinyl is actually way worse than CDs, even though we thought that it wasn't. How being a hipster is actually makes you, you have bigger carbon footprint because you like to have a cool little, you know, 78. I hate, I hate those people in their records. Like, oh, I'm going to get a record player. It's going to be it's analog. And oh, an we're Puritans. And I have an analog camera. Shut up. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it's it. It's okay. Um, of course, but it's it's interesting because now you might ask like how come this contributes to you know pollution for example and obviously in order to do all of this streaming there's definitely material and hardwired network uh, of fiber optic cables and service servers and routers and so on so there's this entire industrial reality that is invisible to us as consumers so we might think that we are participating in a greener future or reality at the moment by simply choosing to stream and not purchasing uh, plastic and so on. But that's actually doesn't seem to be true. Um, so I was wondering to go around the room and ask this question. I mean, we, we sort of, we, we've asked this of ourselves frequently in many other facets of life, like the, what the, the food we get is how is it sourced or the clothes that we buy or you know how much we drive our cars and so on. But do we actually think you know, how these streaming services treat their clients, um, who works to provide for these services and how they're treated and whether we should then again, vote with our dollar and choose not to use them because they're not really helping too many people, but they're still greedy, greedy, greedy money grabbers. Who'd like to go first? Ksenia, I feel like you're, you're always calling me out. Like if you're not prepared for a topic, you're like, oh, I'm just going to agitate Casey and get a response. That Was I not prepared? Did you just call me not prepared? No, just like if maybe you weren't prepared. It's like, I know what I'll do. I'll just go the Casey route and just like bother him to get a, get a rise out of him. No, come on, Casey. No, I just, I thought that you would agree with this whole hipster thing and the whole like, well, I did, I did. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right about that. And I did. And I, I totally join you on that. I, I think it's I think greener is certainly correct. I mean, certainly it, it causes less pollution to play an MP3 than to play a, a track off a CD. And I, I don't know if you all remember Carbon Feed, that art project. Ben, you might. I presented this a long time ago Thank back you. on the show. So, so this one's about tweets, and this is this is my contribution to the to the topic for the day. But um, you guys, this kind of might look familiar a little bit, and that is this thing called car. You can go to carbonfeed.org and check this out. And I presented on this quite a while ago. This was a little art exhibit that lived at JMU for a semester or so, half a semester in one of our galleries. So, uh, just watch this for a second. And if you're looking on YouTube, I've got a little video for you. So there are these cylinders with water and there are these bubbles going up and these little tones are triggered and there are these little screens at the at the foot of each tube and every time a bubble goes off what that is is the exact amount of carbon emission that a tweet causes so each screen is hooked up to a specific tweet feed and they and they change them you know you can you can program them to be different feeds so it's just to show everyone like every time a tweet goes off there is in fact carbon emission and i, I back when i reported on it i did the you know shared the exact calculation 
population. I mean, it's like way small. It's super, super small. But yeah, to think you're doing nothing is just is just incorrect. And it was fun when this exhibit was at JMU. It was in, I believe it was 2016. And because one of the screens was hooked up to um, the Donald Trump Twitter. Hey, Robin. Hey, we're look, look at this. Oh, big dinosaur. Look at this. Look at this. Look at these bubbles. Look at these bubbles we're looking at. So, so each one of these bubbles, well, yeah, they were hooked up to like political threads. So I remember I was in the in the gallery. Okay, see you later. I was in the gallery and um donald trump had just like announced something and they just started like boiling like they just started bubbling like crazy so it was kind of cool that you got this um different effect depending on what tweet what twitter feed they were uh tied to so again just like a cool visual and really artistic beautiful way to demonstrate like hey this is the carbon emissions precisely just to like a single twitter feed yeah that's crazy that's crazy though I personally think it's like, wait, of course it's better to stream or to download and like stay digital than it would be to have physical media. Uh, so is it actually not, Ksenia? Is that what they're no, saying? It's not. It's way worse. And they actually said that they think that because of everything in 2020, the carbon emissions have probably gone way up. But the point of it is that we are constantly in need of, you know, incessant feed from, from our devices. So we are overusing everything. We don't even think about the music anymore. We just play so much more as opposed to, you know, when you own those three records that you love and you use, 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 use them like crazy. Um, and even better if they're on CD. So it turns out that CDs are the most green solution that we've had thus far. I saw that. Wait, even like producing a CD though, like making the plastic, punching yes. it. Yes, because especially recently they've had more, they've been using more and more recyclable materials. So oh, okay. vinyl is extremely bad. Um, right. CDs are better, um, but streaming seems to, because it allows for infinity, it provides a, it produces worse carbon emissions. Then. Cool. Okay. I think one, one thing Ksenia has kind of said multiple times here is that it's, like the, I think maybe if we listen to MP3s the way that we listen to CDs, it wouldn't be as bad. But the this you know easy access to it that at any point you can play it that actually can cause cause issues. I will say though that one thing that it didn't seem like they took into consideration is that a phone is not just an MP3 player, uh, and or an iPad or computer or whatever. And so it's like okay, but are you also factoring how many like you know how much carbon reduction there is from having books on these devices and not having to drive to a library every time I want information. So I, you know, like, I think it's, it's maybe, and the, it seems like the article kind of acknowledges that this is like a sort of self-made study. It's not like a scientific study. It's, you know, back of the envelope math, as they say. So maybe it's not as grim of a picture as it, as it points, but uh, I, I do think it, you know, I'm not denying the implications of the article. I do think it raises interesting points. And to me, the one thing that like, I just, I keep, I've probably mentioned this several times before on the podcast that it just strikes me so much is that the access to information uh, makes it less valuable. And so like, because we can so easily listen to music, now we do, and we also listen less carefully. We listen more, but also less carefully, which in turn, it seems creates more carbon emissions. So I don't know, my two cents, I just, I thought it was an interesting hot take. There's nothing I can do about it as a consumer really at this point. So, you know, take that as it will. But you mentioned something about shower streams. Can you tell Oh yeah, one of, one of the weird things that pointed out in the article is they said there was like a Spotify as a executive that said, you know, they can track and every day we have, I think it's 550,000 shower streams, um, which I mean, it's like, first of all, how are you tracking that? Are you listening for running water sounds on people's microphones or it's just right. shower related playlist? What, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, but beyond that, I mean, I will admit like, you know, think about how many people would go put a vinyl record on to take a shower. Probably no one, <laughs> not to mention who has a record player in the bathroom. Uh, I see Casey nodding that yes, he does that. But other than yeah. Casey, who, who goes and puts on a vinyl album to take a shower? Whereas like, who has a Bluetooth speaker in the bathroom for, yeah, like, oh, has that, you know? I just meant I take the record in with me to the show. Oh, okay, yeah, well, that doesn't create any carbon. Yeah, as like a friend, yeah. as like a comfort friend. Yeah. You, you know? have yeah. to yeah. Like, you know, Robin has his rubber ducky, Casey has his yeah, final. Has a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Morris's <laughs> Palter's, Palter's record. 
Yeah, but I, you know, I don't know. So I think there's uh, that's an, an interesting, like, very clear example of how we I'll call it over listen now. Yeah, exactly. Carly, did you have any thoughts? You know, I was thinking about like you mentioned, 2020 could be like the very worst, m most number of streams and most harmful in that sense. But also, you know, if I'm at home and that means I'm streaming audio, whatever, whatever I'm listening to, also I'm not commuting 400 miles a week like I was a year ago. So I imagine that more than offsets whatever increased streaming. But you know, the, the whole thing too, I, like my first reaction reading this was thinking like, oh, now I need to feel guilty about about streaming music too like now I need to feel guilty about and I hope nobody feels guilty about uh watching or listening to the podcast but you know it's like it it honestly it felt like oh gosh one more thing like I need to feel bad about this so I don't know I guess it's it's important to be informed and it's important to make careful decisions thoughtful decisions about how we consume but yeah kind of a kind of a bummer well it seems like something it yeah I mean of course we have to be careful of all everything as much as we can but it, it seems like um gosh we need to someday not be concerned with that <laughs> like wait is streaming something like actually a problem it's like well once we get the bigger things in check uh yeah this this should be uh something we can feel okay <laughs> about doing and that's one thing i certainly disagreed with it said the music industry is probably as bad as any other it's like wait a minute there's no way it's as bad as the food industry or the oil industry like come on that's that's um come on new yorker what are you what are you saying yeah and i mean also one thing to consider is that a lot of especially tech companies are going towards zero carbon emissions for all their energy for their entire supply chain all the way down to their retail operations so there's that but to, to Carly's point and, you know, sort of my point earlier, like these are multitasking devices. And so, for example, people aren't meeting, well, now for obvious reasons, but even before that, people aren't driving and meeting as much because we can have meetings on computers, which I think is definitely a lower carbon footprint. So, yeah, again, maybe it's uh, not as dire of a big deal as the New Yorker makes it sound like. Maybe. Maybe, maybe, or maybe we all die in a year from streaming music. Or maybe I'm just rationalizing it and we're all going to, yeah, we're all going to die. No, it no, is, no, of course. I, I will say I love like, hey, we need to think about the environment in more ways than just like pollution and where pollution comes from. It's like, I've heard it said once in like public discourse anywhere, online, TV, et cetera, that like, hey, just so you know, the reason we have COVID is environmental related. It's not like emissions related. It's because of animal cruelty. That's why COVID's here. It's like, I've heard that mentioned once. And it's like, well, okay, I know I don't want to like offend Chinese cultures and how things are being done. And I'm sorry, Pius Chang, you're mad at me and everything. But like, dude it's because of how it's because of animal cruelty that covid exists you know like i do like you never hear that you like never hear i heard it once ever so i don't know that's that's environmental you know that is like how we how we exist with our environment of course i mean it's our ecosystem we will yeah. either coexist and treat it nicely so that it gives us a home or we will poop where we eat and it will come back to us so <laughs> Um, uh, Kara, did you did you have a thought? Is this something that you've discussed over Guinness in Ireland, maybe, or or you have some thoughts? Um, maybe not on the environmental aspects. I think most of what I heard have heard is about how musicians don't get any money from streaming services. So, yeah, yeah, and that was another part of the article was just like certainly hey. talk about that one too. Yeah, what do you think, Kara? Like, do, do you go on streaming services? Do you say no way? That's like a terrible deal. Um, I actually don't, but I'm I'm super old school, y'all. I still have a flip phone, so <laughs> oh, good for you. Um, <laughs> but no, I really like I like having CDs just because if I'm going to a concert or something, I like to come back, you know, with something that I can hold, and I like reading the liner notes and. I don't know, it just feels more personal. Maybe that sounds silly, but I, I prefer that. And It probably way, makes way more economic sense too. I mean, you go to a gig, you bring a stack of 20 CDs and maybe you sell them all that night and you make way more money than <laughs> most others in our, in our, you know, in our league um, could ever make on Spotify or iTunes. I mean, it's just, if I ever did it again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sign up for that. It's not, not good for us. I don't think not a good deal for us. Yeah. I've heard great things about Bandcamp. If any of y'all use Bandcamp, 
yeah, they they seem to have a much better deal, and they treat their their musicians a little bit better, certainly. But yes, Spotify sucks. <laughs> it's not a secret, Cindy. You don't have to whisper that. I just don't want the Swedes to arrest me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's it. That's it from the grim topic from Serbia. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Well, a nice segue is speaking of albums and CDs and all of that. Kara, would you tell us about your debut self-titled album? Sure. I released it in 2017, so it's not really a it's not new anymore, but um it's the only one I have out. So, it's just a little short guy, only five tracks. I did a traditional Norwegian tune. Actually, my friend was playing a uh, hardanger fiddle, so it's Bauron fiddle and cello. And then we did a Western swing track back to my roots, like I was talking about at the beginning. Um, And then all the rest are traditional Irish music. So it's on my website if anyone's interested. Makes a great stocking stuffer or maybe a birthday present since this is going to air on Christmas Eve. I can't get it to you overnight, but uh, maybe for another occasion. Yeah, it sounds really great. I listened to the one track on your website today, the first track, and yeah, I mean, it's just really, really nice. Yeah, thanks. Great. I was I was listening to, and some of my students got to hear. They'd be like, "Oh, I'm getting set up, switching over to xylophone now." And I'm like, "Cool, check this out." Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks, y'all. Yeah, it's it's super great. Um, go and check out Kara's website if you haven't already, and same with with social media accounts. I was wondering, and, and I hope this isn't a super long question, and maybe you may or may not know, but like history of Bauron playing, like how, how did it develop that somebody said, yeah, we're going to do this with one hand and we're going to play these really fast rhythms with one hand rather than like put the drum flat and play with two. It's like a percussion history. Cause it seems like it, we always have these like really crazy techniques in specific instruments that you would think you really would have to play with the instrument that way for so long before even discovering that were possible. I don't know. Do you know how that developed with Boron? Technique wise, actually, I don't. I mean, I know a little bit of history about the instrument. Well, what they think is history. There's not much written down from what everyone thinks. It used to be a farming tool back in the day. Um, But as far as one hand, no, I actually don't have any idea. I'm going to guess because, so if any of y'all are from farming backgrounds, whenever you harvest your grain, wheat or oats or whatever, there's this little part around the seed that you don't eat called the chaff and it's gross and hard and you don't eat it. So back in the old days when they'd harvest their grain, they put it out on like a blanket and beat it to separate the the actual seed part that you'd grind up for your flour or bread or whatever from the gross part and then on a windy day they put all the the seed in this um instrument or farming tool and the bowron basically and like sort of go like this up in the air so that the the gross part would blow away um but on the back because it's lighter than everything else it's lighter so the grain would fall back down and then the the other part would would blow away but it had um it used to have these sort of things in the back like a crossbar uh, for support or the really old ones like the skin they wouldn't make it just to fit the the head they would just pull the extra edges and time in the back so that might be why they've only used one stick is because you just hold it back here with the one one hand that's all speculation, Casey, on my part. I don't know. I'm just it's thinking, just, it's just so thinking cool. out loud. No, that's great. Thanks. That's exactly what I was after. Like, it, it just seems like such a thing. Like, you would never think someone could do that unless you already saw someone doing it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop this thing with one hand to where I go like, like, you would never think, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that unless you saw someone already doing it. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a topic for further study, for sure. I guess so, yeah. Anybody ever have that thought about formalit marimba? Like, if you if that wasn't a thing, how does that seem natural? Like, it's so obvious you hold one in each hand. Right. Yeah, yeah. That that's another example. I think you know, and and I guess that's that's the thing. Like, it develops, but um, and and I mean, obviously, that that must be what Bauron did too. You know. I'm gonna say in both cases, alcohol was probably involved. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Ireland. Oh, yeah, we're learning so much about Ireland today. <laughs> I, you, since you mentioned formal marimba, I, I like the 
the story about Gary Burton was just like, I mean, I didn't have anyone to play with me, so I had to be able to play chords. So I just kind of grabbed some more mallets. <laughs> and that's how we started playing four mallets. That's crazy. It's crazy to think like, oh yeah, well, I'll just make it work. And uh, I don't know. Well, Kara, why don't you tell us a little bit, how have you been staying busy playing during the pandemic and how has this time been different for you than a regular fall semester might be? Yeah, well, I've had no gigs, which has been really different for me. Um, I was playing a lot. I had, a, I think, about three pub gigs and also a session every week. So I was playing like a ton and then the pandemic hit right before St. Patrick's Day, which was awful. It's like my biggest month of the year. I lost like $7,000 in March. It was terrible. So financially, it's been a big hit. But I was already, I, I feel, felt very fortunate in this regard. There's not a ton of people who play Bowron in this area. So I have quite a few um, virtual lesson students. And I was already teaching virtually before the pandemic. And then I think maybe people got a little bit bored and said, oh, I have free time. And I actually had a whole bunch of extra students sign up in March, which was fantastic for me. Um, so I've been doing a lot of teaching online. Um, I've had a few uh, virtual gigs. I've been really lucky too. I have uh, three people ask me to record on some of their recording projects. I think people are just like, okay, I have time now, get this done. So I've gotten to do some recording both for Bowron and then with our local symphony, I play percussion with them. And then one project I'm really excited about, um, there's another great Bowron player in New York named Anna Colleton. Um, check her out if you've ever heard her play or never heard her play. And just, I guess, probably start of the pandemic, we made a little short duet video together and everybody loved it. And we're actually writing a suite of duets for Balron. And I'm doing the transcription. And also, if you guys follow me on Instagram, please go, because Anna doesn't, she doesn't use traditional notation whenever she writes stuff out. Um, she kind of has created her own system and it's based um, on fiddle bow notation. So lots of like down bows and up bows. So anyway, if you're on my Instagram, I did a whole little post about different uh, Baron players and the different notation systems they've invented and hers actually is really beautiful. So anyway, we're making a suite now of duets for Bowron, and the idea is to write it out in traditional notation in case they're percussionists who want to learn it, but also um, with recordings in case there are any traddies out there who don't read music and, and want to play. So we're working on those right now and I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. I look forward to hearing that and seeing it. It's wonderful. It's inspiring to see the different ways that people are coming up with creative projects and how do we how do we continue to do what we do and to work creatively and, you know, make music even when every obstacle that could be is is in front of us. So thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I look forward to hearing it. Kara, thank you so much for joining us today. It was wonderful to hear about what you've been up to and we will look forward to seeing y'all next time. Yeah, thanks so much and Merry Christmas, everybody.